Amen. Thank you, Randy and choir and Aaron and musicians, reminding us of that beautiful truth that we who are in Christ now stand washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. You know, substitutionary atonement is the, the doctrine that says that Jesus died in our place. And that doctrine is a difficult one to really wrap our, our brains around, and it's not a very popular one in a lot of Christian circles today. But without it, I don't think you have Christianity. I think at some level you have to understand that substitutionary atonement is the core, the heart of the matter, as we've been talking about all throughout this month. The, the heart of the matter is that we stand redeemed. If you notice a theme through Aaron's good planning today, you see that Jesus paid it all. This is a, these are songs about substitutionary atonement. That's what we're going to be talking about today in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14. It's something that we cannot get away from. If it's the heart of the matter, then it changes everything. We stand on this idea that our sins have been atoned for. They've been paid. Our debt that we could not have paid ourselves has been paid for us. Now, if you grew up in church, and I know you good Alabama people grew up in church, you may have heard that a million times. My prayer is that you leave this place today with that fresh, victorious feeling. You saw Randy's fist go up. It reminds me of when Dr. Hash was baptized here the same day that Jude was baptized about four and a half years ago, and he came out of the water. That's right, Bobby, he did this. He did this. It was a sign of victory because he had been redeemed. I hear that today the TV broadcast is not working. There was something wrong with the signal. Uh, so we're free to do whatever we want today, all right? So I may, I may preach for two hours. Get ready, because it's, yeah, we're not constrained by anything today. So uh, Holy Spirit, move in power. That's our prayer, and that it would be every week, and that we're not constrained by anything. But uh, today they're showing a broadcast from last week, um, which was great service, so not a problem. But um, we are streaming still on uh, Internet and Facebook, so... Welcome if you're watching on those platforms. Okay, our culture has a lot of issues, we know that. But one of them is that we're so conditioned to believe that we are what we do. That, that our identity is derived from our actions alone. Our culture is largely predicated on this idea that we are defined by our individual achievements. We know that can be toxic, right? You know where I see this creep up all the time? Kids sports. Kids sports. You see this idea that you are what you do in kids sports. It's easy to cheer for your kid when your kid is dominating, when your kid's doing really well. Yeah, that's my boy. That's my girl. Go, go kid. I remember the first time I saw Jude do something that was, you know, somewhat athletic and a somewhat organized sport. It was upward soccer. And I think he was three, three years old. And, and some kid was on a fast break. They don't play with goalies at that age, you know. So some kid's on a fast break, and he's running to the goal, and he's got nothing between him and the goal. And Jude is on the other team, chased him down from behind. And as the kid shoots at the wide-open goal, Jude slides in front of it and blocks it. And I remember going, yeah. And then I was like, whoa, that was strangely involuntary how excited I got about that performance just then. 
And then it hit me, oh, this is why you see those crazy videos of parents uh, throwing things on the field and yelling at referees. That's that visceral reaction that I just had. I get it now. Okay, I got to watch that and keep an eye on it. But what about when our kids play poorly? What about when your kid doesn't stop the goal? What about when your kid messes up? It's so easy for our kids' self-esteem, for their self-worth to be based off of how they perform or how they do because they've been conditioned to believe they are what they do. Somewhere, Morgan and I read an article, I don't know where we found it, uh, that, that said some advice for parents on how to deal with kids' sports and how to avoid this idea that you are what you do. It said the best thing you as a parent can say to your kid is, I love watching you play. I love watching you play. Because that tells them that their worth is not found in how they do, but just that they're out there using their gifts, that they're growing, that they're being a good teammate, that they're encouraging, that they're having fun, that they're making friends, all those things. I love watching you play. Whether your kid's at a you know, band performance or a theater performance or whatever it is, parents, let's just say, I love to watch you do what you do. I love to support you because I love you. Loving our kids means not living vicariously through them, which a lot of us are tempted to do, heaping a bunch of selfish expectations on them based on their performance. Love, love we know love should be unconditional. That as parents, love should be unconditional. We know this because God has loved us with an unconditional love. And that is the heart of the matter. God has loved us in a way that is not based on our performance. That is what we're gonna see in Galatians chapter, chapter three today. This idea of we are what we do is so ingrained in us, it's, it's, it's reinforced all the time in what we read and what we see. You know, what do you say to somebody when you meet them for the first time or somebody on an airplane? What do you say to them? What do you do? What do you do? Because what they do defines them. So we think. But what we're going to see is that the Galatians had a very similar idea. The Galatians really believed that they, their identity was derived from their performance, from what they did. What we're going to see in Galatians chapter 3 is a text that runs deeply countercultural to both our culture and the culture in Galatia at the time. It's a counterintuitive text as well because we believe we are what we do. The Apostle Paul is going to show us that life, true life, abundant and eternal life, is not something we achieve by doing. It's not something we obtain for ourselves. It's something that God only can do and that God only has done for us. I think it was Bill Hybels who used to say back in his early evangelistic days, religion is spelled D-O. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. One works endlessly to earn love. Religion works endlessly to earn love. The other simply receives it as a free gift. It's not an easy concept to grasp, but thank God for his word that teaches our hearts to believe this. So let's stand today in honor of God's word as I read this beautiful text. Will you stand from, as I read Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14? 
This is a, a passage that, again, if you let it speak to your heart, if we will listen with the ears of our hearts today, it will transform us. Hear now the word of the Lord. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, I read an article in the Tennessean last week about a 28-year-old entrepreneur from California. Probably some of you saw this article. I'm an old man, and I read the paper and drink coffee in the morning. And <laughs> after I read my Bible, of course. Uh, but this, this guy was an entrepreneur from San Diego, and he was traveling back home uh, after spending some time in Cabo on the beach at a resort. And he was reading a book about the Appalachian Trail, and he was stranded due to weather in the airport in Atlanta, and he said, it's destiny. I'm going to go right now and hike the Appalachian Trail from start to finish. And he, he got an Uber. He left his luggage in the airport and Ubered to Springer Mountain, which is the southern terminus of the Appalachian Trail, and didn't have any gear. And people, you know, kind of helped him out along the way and gave him some things. But we have a guy in our church who hiked the entire Appalachian Trail over some time, and it took him a long time and a lot of preparation, and it took him a lot of gear and a lot of training in order to do that. This guy just went and said, I'm going to hike the whole thing. Guess what happened? <laughs> he made it to the Smokies, which is pretty good. That's more than I thought he would make it. But it's January, as you know, and it's cold, and I don't know if you know this, but it snowed a lot last week, and this guy uh, was on the trail, and he found himself waist-deep in snow. He wandered off the trail because it's hard to see it under three feet of snow, and he found himself lost. His shoes were soaking wet. Everything was wet. He said uh, he was 1,000 feet below the trail when, in what rescuers described as very treacherous terrain. I bet it was. He says, I had snow in my socks. My shoes were soaking wet. My pants were soaking wet. My sleeping bag was soaking wet. My tent was soaking wet. I'm off track down a ravine. I'm trapped in a creek asking God why. I've got some ideas, but that's not the point. He ended up finding some cell signal, and he called the park rangers for, for help, and they called in a National Guard uh, helicopter rescue team that came out and found him waving an orange cap and lowered a, a, a paramedic down to to rescue him. 
And the end of the article is fascinating. He said the experience of nearly losing his life on the Appalachian Trail was, quote, transformational, he said. Everything I had was given to me by good Samaritans. Everybody helped me on my way, he said. I realized I can't do it on my own. In Cabo, I was full of myself. With this, I realized I'm nothing compared to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in the article. I found God through this experience, he said. So why did this guy end up in such a life-threatening predicament? Because he was sold on this idea that he could do everything by himself. Call it youthful exuberance, call it hubris, probably was a little of that, some pride. But he almost died because he thought he could just go and do this incredibly difficult thing and accomplish it on his own. And of course, people who have hiked the trail will tell you that you can't do it on your own. It takes a lot of support. It may be easy to point the finger at this guy and say, well, that was foolish and that was you know, naive and silly of him to do it, but many of us do something even more crazy than this guy. Many of us try to go through this life as if we can be good enough to be right with God in and of ourselves. We don't understand either the depth of our sin and our brokenness, nor do we understand the majesty of the riches of God's grace. If we realize that apart from God's grace, we're actually in a sinking boat of sin, we would actually call for the National Guard to come rescue us too. In a culture that says you are what you do, Let's spend some time together this morning trying to undo that by looking at this text that shows us God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. God has done what we could not do. And you'll see that on your outline. And the first point I want to cover on our outline is about our identity in him. I pray that we're going to see this truth that who we are now in Christ is not about what we've done at all but that we get a new identity that's 100% about what God has done for us, specifically two huge things that we could never have done for ourselves. And the first one is that new identity that God has given us a new family and a new mission, a new family that comes with a new mission as well. Look at verses six and seven. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Anybody have that song in their head right now? Many sons said, Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm. I I never knew what that song was about, right? Uh, Anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of y'all didn't grow up in church, like, that's weird. Yeah, (laughs) you haven't heard that before. Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them. Galatians 3 is making this case that we who believe in Christ are now part of the family of God. Let's just get some context on that. Last week, we saw how Paul was this attorney in a courtroom setting. He was defending the gospel against the objections of the Judaizers, and then he went on offense and became the prosecuting attorney, and he grilled the Galatians on why they had so uh, quickly abandoned the clear teaching of the gospel that we are justified by faith and not by works. He's already established that. 
in chapter 2, he makes that clear. Verse 16, he says that that new life that they received when they converted to Christ came through hearing and by faith. And now he moves into this theological section in chapters 3 and 4 that really unpack the theology behind justification by faith and not by works. He's, he's going to connect the, the theology of the gospel to the larger story of what God is doing from Genesis to, at this point, through Malachi. He's using the Old Testament scriptures six times in this little passage, verses 6 through 14, Paul quotes from the Hebrew scriptures because all scripture is God-breathed and he's believing that these Hebrew scriptures are also inspired and that Christianity, the gospel, is not some kind of new idea that trumps the Old Testament, but that fulfills it. As Jesus said, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to be the fulfillment of the law. So he traces the, the Jesus story back to the Abraham story and connects it. The Abraham story is the beginning of God's people. And here Paul says that those of faith, those who believe in what Jesus has done, are the children of Abraham. The ESV and the King James say sons of Abraham. That's, you know, it's weird that we made girls say, uh, Father Abraham had many sons and I am one of them. <laughs> the word in Hebrew means sons and daughters. It means children, so we'll say children. He's talking about people who put their faith in the good news that God has forged a way for us to be made right with him apart from our own ability through Jesus Christ, that they've been born again into a living hope, and now they are part of the family of God. How can that be? That's a bold claim, that all people who follow Christ, no matter what their gender, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their socioeconomic status, no matter what their background, they're all folded together into this special family that was previously limited to only those who came from the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. No longer. Now that the Jewish nation has, has blown up into the whole world. So let us briefly recap. You've heard this before, and this is a little didactic, and we're going to fly through it. So if it, you know, put your thinking caps on. You're very intelligent people. You all have, you know, lots of learning. So uh, let's just recap the story of everything ever based on what you learned in ninth grade English or maybe eighth grade. I don't know when they do this now, but, but those of you that are new, Davis family and others haven't heard my pitch on this. So just real quickly, let's, let's recap what happened. You have the story of everything ever in Act 1. We see creation. Act one, we know, is the exposition where we meet the main characters. Who's the main character in the story of everything ever? Me? No? Oh, man, I don't get to be the hero? No, it's God. God's the main character. You also encounter creation, and you encounter the crown of creation. That's me. I get to be a part in the story. We're humans who are made in God's image as relational beings, as uh, you know, beings with a soul that, that we are. We also meet, at the end of, of Act 1, we have an inciting moment. We, eat our great, we meet our great enemy, Satan, who shows up to wreck everything, to make a formerly good creation, very good creation, into a mess of violence and selfish greed and pride. And that's what happens at the end of Act 1 in Genesis 3. Genesis 4 through 
Malachi, really, beginning in Genesis 12, God says, I got a plan. Yes, you have Noah and the flood and all that, then you have the Tower of Babel, but starting in Genesis 12, God says, I'm gonna make a special people for myself, a covenant people that will be my own people, Exodus 19.6, a people for my own possession, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And, I, and through them, I'm gonna bless the whole world. Through them, I'm gonna use them as a conduit of blessing into this broken world now. That's what happens in the covenant one. But then you get 400 years of silence after Malachi, and then you have the climax of the story. This part is rising action. Do you remember this narrative arc from ninth grade English? The top is the climax. Once you hit the climax, nothing going forward will ever be the same, right? The climax is that point that turns the whole story. Everything changes at the climax. 400 years of silence, 400 years of dark, darkness, and then the light of the world comes in Jesus Christ. God shows up, the incarnation, the first advent of God into our world. He walks among us. He tabernacles with us. He gives us words of life. He heals, and he, he, uh, all the verbs that Bill talks about that I love, that Jesus does all these beautiful things. And then he does the most important thing. He dies on a cross. He atones for the sins of you and me. He does what we could not have done and pays our debt, as we just sang earlier. He didn't stay dead. He rises again, conquering the power of sin and death forever. And that leads to Act 4, which is our part. This is right now. Covenant people 2, part 2. We're the new covenant people of God. And guess what? It matters that we belong to Abraham because the plan is still the same. How does God want to bless the world? Through the church. He's given the church to the world. Sometimes we think God gives the world to the church. No, God's mission has a church, not the church has a mission. Have you heard that before? That's good. That'll preach, won't it? God's mission has a church, right? The church doesn't just have a mission. God's mission is to use the church to be the conduit of blessing into the world again. And now we do that work awaiting with hope Act 5, when Jesus breaks back into our world and the curtain drops on Act 4 and opens on Act 5, which is the new heaven and new earth, a new creation. So you can contextualize now every book of the Bible. You want to put the Gospels here. You want to put Acts, you know, starts the covenant people, starting with Acts, and then Revelation, obviously, uh, starts the, the new creation, um, really starting in Revelation uh, chapter 4, really, you could say when John gets that glimpse. All right, that took a long way to show that we are now Abraham's children. I hope that makes sense. I hope that's in context for you now, that we are the new covenant people of God. We gotta move on. Uh, we, we are Abraham's children because we believe like Abraham believed. We believe that God can do what he says he can do and that he has done what he has said he has done, which is make atonement for us. And that belief is what makes us right with God, just like it did Abraham. we got to move on. Verses 8 and 9 show that just like Abraham, we were blessed in order to be a blessing. Verse 8 says, <coughs> excuse me, the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Blessed. 
So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you remember what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3? Look at this. This is what he says. The Lord says to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you can sit back and retire. No, that's not what he said. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's plan is to use Abraham's family, again, to bless the world. And he was blessed. How did God bless Abraham? Well, one of the primary ways is he gave him a land. He gave him a a promised land flowing with milk and honey from which his special family would be a beacon of hope to the world. His family was supposed to set up a temple and worship practices there in Canaan, and all nations would look to them as God's special people, and God's blessing would flow from Jerusalem's Temple Mount all over the rest of the world we know that they messed it up. We know that they could not do this no matter how many lambs, no matter how many bulls, no matter how many doves that they slaughtered on the altar, their sins were more numerous still. So God gave him this land, but now with new covenant people, what does God give us? He's given us seven acres here in Green Hills, which is amazing, thanks to to Bob Fulcher and some others who had that insight to, to get this property. But something better than land that God has blessed us with. Our blessings are not ultimately made of dirt. They're not made of temple worship practices. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. We've been given every spiritual blessing Everything that is essential for spiritual life is ours now in Christ. Now we are blessed to be a blessing. We have new life in Christ. We have an inheritance that will never spoil, perish, or fade. We have peace that passes understanding. We grieve, but we grieve with hope of resurrection. We have so many of these spiritual resources that are ours now in Christ. Why does God give us these things? Why does God give us the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who empowers us, who convicts us? Why does God give us the body of Christ? Why does God give us pastors and shepherds and teachers and elders and a whole new family network of support to help us raise our kids and to help us uh, do life when life is hard? God does this so we can fulfill our mission He doesn't give us these things so we can enjoy them. Church isn't a country club that we join to feel good about. Church is the body of Christ here on earth for a purpose. We're here for a mission to make disciples of all nations through evangelism. We're here for the purpose of making heaven more, earth more like heaven and less like hell by crawling under houses in Waverly and by going and, and, and ministering to those that need it the most, by building schools in Lunsar, Sierra Leone, by participating in the ministry that, the, that God has given to us. All of those things are the church's job until Act 5, and until then, let's get to work. 
Let's get to work, making disciples, ministering, and evangelizing. All this talk about Abraham, though, misses the whole point of the Judaizers in Galatia. They don't care about Abraham. Abraham came centuries before the law. That's what they're really obsessed with. They're obsessed with the law that came at Sinai after the Exodus. They're concerned that everyone still needs to submit to the law. And that brings us to the second major thing that God has done for us. He's removed the curse of the law, which is death. The law brings death. We know that death is the worst thing in the world. That death is the worst thing in the world, and the law only brings death. So what we're going to see is that he's done this, what we could not do for ourselves, removing that curse of the law. And these people that, that, that were Abraham's line were, were so special because of the law. The law said, don't eat pork. The law said, get circumcised on the eighth day. They were known throughout the world as this weird people who didn't eat pork and who all got circumcised and did these weird things, didn't eat shellfish. Why didn't they eat lobsters? Delicious. Why didn't they do that? Because God said, I'm setting you apart for myself. And that's what defined them as God's people. We have to understand this is a big deal to people who were Jewish in nature. Their whole identity was wrapped up in these rules that were given to them through the law. Therefore, they thought they were holy and right with God because they had the law. They thought that other people, pagan people, they called them ham aretz in Hebrew, that they were under a curse because they were outside the law. They were, they were eating barbecue and they were doing bad stuff. Those people were outside the law. Those are the bad people who are under a curse. Remember John chapter 7? Jesus is at the festival of booths in Jerusalem. There's a little short verse in verse 49 where the Pharisees look out at the crowd that's full of Gentiles who've come up for the party at the festival of booths. They look out at the crowd and they say, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Who are they to say anything about the gospel? Who are they to talk about the Messiah? They don't know anything. They're outside the law. Therefore, they are accursed. But here, Paul flips the script on them and says, no, 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 no. It's not the Gentile sinners who are accursed. It's the Jewish scholars. It's the Jewish lawyers, the Jewish scribes that know the law so well. They are the ones that are really accursed because the more you know the law, the more you know how far short you've fallen. Look at verses 10 through 12. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. He's quoting again from the Torah. Now it's evident that no one's justified before God by the law. Again, another quote. For the righteous shall live by faith. That's from Habakkuk chapter 2. But the law is not of faith. It's about doing. It's not about believing. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Another Torah quote. He's saying that the law is about doing, and he's proving it through the scriptures itself. Scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. Paul shows them that trying to live by the law only leads to death. That's point A on your outline. Trying to live by the law only leads to death. I love how Alan Cole paraphrases these verses in his commentary. It's like Paul saying, <coughs> all of those who hunt for acceptance with God are on the grounds 
of doing what the law commands are under the curse of God. This is clear from Scripture that says everyone who fails to stand fast by everything written in the law book and to do it is under the curse of God. No one obtains right standing with God by law, for again, Scripture says, the one who obtains right standing through faith will win life. Paul, again, is pulling these well-known texts to these Judaizers from the, the Hebrew Scriptures to prove that the gospel is not some new idea, but it's the fulfillment of God's plan all along. The law is all about keeping the, the do's and the don'ts, right? Do's and don'ts. People still think Christianity is about do's and don'ts. It's not at all. The abundant life only comes through being made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone. We can't say that enough. Faith in what? That's the next point. Look at our last two verses, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. How? Through faith. We put our faith in what Jesus did, not in what we can do. The law only showed us how far short we fell of God's standard of holiness. What he demands is perfection because he's holy. He wouldn't be holy if he didn't. We owed this unbelievable debt, a debt that we could never have paid, but Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. Some of us have a hard time, Bill was talking about on Thursday, we have a hard time, especially people who are, uh, you know, proud and think we're very accomplished, we have a hard time receiving when people do things for us. Bill told the story about falling off a ladder and having to be out for, for, in the hospital for six weeks in full body cast, and he said it was really hard to have people do things for me. I'm the same way, Bill. It's hard for me to receive when people do things for us. And really, you know what that is? It's probably our pride. We'd rather be the ones serving than the ones who are receiving. We like to believe that we've earned all that we have, and we like for others to be indebted to us. I hate feeling indebted to someone else, but let's drop all of our pride today. Let's let it go and admit we owe everything to him who paid our debt in full. The doctrine, again, of, of sub substitutionary atonement is not fashionable. One of my professors from the religion department at Belmont University posted on social media how Jesus did not have to die for our sins recently. Uh, that's something you, I'm hearing a lot in, in circles that I run in. But I don't know how you can cut it out of Christianity when you have clear texts like Galatians 3 that say this is the heart of the matter. This is the heart of the matter. Jesus died for our sins. I don't know if you've let that hit you like it hit me recently. One time I was in Australia, and I was, I was 19 years old, and I was working as a, a summer there as a kind of a summer missionary, and I was with a group of Chinese believers that were second-generation Chinese, 
And we were about to go into an evangelistic service and they had invited their parents to this service. And the gospel was gonna be preached by the pastor. And we prayed for their parents who were lost and searching. And, and one of them prayed with such passion and such fervor for their parents. They said, help our parents to know that you died for their sins. And when they said it, I started crying because it hadn't hit me as a 19-year-old what Jesus had really done for me. I prayed you would let that just hit you today, that you would drop that pride and realize that God has done for us what we could not have done for ourselves. He's given us a new family, forever family, as CR folks like to say, I love that, our forever family. He's given us a new mission. And he's removed the curse that the law brings and he's given us life by conquering death forever. Let's live into that gospel reality as we leave this place today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. God, we thank you for forging a way to make us right with you both now and forever through the cross and through the empty tomb. God, we thank you for the gospel. We know that we can never repay the debt that you've paid for us. But I pray that you would help us to live lives worthy of the gospel, empowered by the gospel, that we would constantly go about worshiping you, giving you thanks and praise for all that you are and all that you've done. God, we thank you that you are love, that you are love supreme, that you are love above all loves, love divine, all loves excelling. God, I pray that you would teach us to know you more, to love you more, and to live from a place of gospel grace, that we would grow in grace as your Holy Spirit conforms us to your image more and more each day. May we as the church be effective in the mission that you've given to us, that you've given us to the mission of evangelizing the world, of, of making earth more like heaven. Help us to be a blessing, a conduit of your blessing everywhere we go to everyone that we meet. Help us to show grace to those who are, are unfair or unkind to us. Help us to raise our children in the grace that you have shown us. Oh God, we need you every hour. We realize that we are like that hiker caught out in the snow. We are in the same sinking boat of sin apart from your goodness and from your grace. So we cry out again, oh God, for your deliverance from whatever grip it has on us of sin or addiction or whatever we're going through, Lord. I pray you would break those chains today and help us to live more fully in your light and in your love. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of response about God's grace as well. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're ready to come forward today and say, I'm ready to surrender everything to him and say all to Jesus, I owe everything because he has paid the debt that I couldn't pay. If you're ready to receive that free gift of salvation, there's no better time to do so than right now as we sing about the grace that's greater than all of our sin. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont Baptist Church like the Morlock family did uh, last week and uh, like uh, Erno Woodall did last week. If you're ready to say, I'm in, I want to be a part of what God's doing here officially as a member, as a part of this family, 
of faith, and we'd love to receive you as well to talk about that. Whatever it is that you need to do today in your heart, don't leave this place without having dealt honestly with the Lord. Let's stand and sing about grace.